Well, before we begin, let us speak with our Lord and ask for his guidance and help. Heavenly Father, it humbles us to come before your word. We have such shallow minds that we cannot comprehend very easily what your word has to say in so many parts. But we have to work hard to understand and we need your Holy Spirit to help us and guide us. We pray that he may be present amongst us this morning, helping each of us to understand what you have said in your word and that he may be strengthening us and building us up in the faith so that we can serve you better. And we pray this in your precious son's name. Amen. Well, this morning, as John has said a couple of times, this is a difficult part of scripture. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 6 and particularly verses 4 to 6. And I've chosen to deal with this not because... um, I like tackling difficult parts of scripture particularly and want to get stuck into them with sermons. It's because I've actually been doing an essay on this at Bible College and so for the last two weeks I've spent lots of time in the text and so it seemed very easy for me to uh, then prepare a sermon and preach it today. Plus it's a text that does confuse a lot of uh, Christians and uh, perplexes them and troubles them and so I thought it'd be helpful for you you to hear some of uh, my conclusions about it and uh, how we are best to understand it, what I think the text is actually saying. Uh, why is this text difficult? Uh, you may be thinking, oh, it's not that, it doesn't seem that uh, difficult. Uh, well, from verse 4 onwards, it deals with, uh, it, it clashes with the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Uh, that doctrine that a Reformed uh, Calvinist hold to, that as Christians, once you are saved, you are always saved. Uh, as we read from the other passage in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He lists all those things, Paul does, that we cannot be separated from the love of God. Once we become a Christian, we are in God's hand and no one can snatch us out of that hand. But here in Hebrews 6, we read a text that seems to suggest that people who are Christians can fall away, that they can fall away and that they can never come back. Uh, We'll just have a look at the text. Um, Chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. I'll I'll just quickly go through it. Verse 4, it says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. It reads there like these are people who are Christians and they then fall away and they cannot absolutely, it is impossible for them to come back. And this seems to be an absolute contradiction with texts like Romans 8 where we are said to, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, height nor depth, nothing can separate us. But this text seems to imply that you can fall away and you can't come back. And I mean this is quite troubling because we like to know that we have assurance, we have the, that we will persevere to the end. And we see this in many parts of our life. We, we love to know that we are assured of when something bad happens we will be safe. And this is why we have insurance policies. If I have a car accident everything will be okay because the insurance company will be there to help me out. And we see this with uh, things like uh, mortgages. They have fixed interest rates for those who want to be certain as to how much they're going to have to pay and that won't fluctuate with the market as we've seen in this past week. Uh, Things can happen and we want to know that when those things happen we will be safe. 
And so what we want to know as Christians is, I've made the decision to follow Christ, will I be able to persevere to the end? Will I always be a Christian? Or will at some point I fall away and I will never be able to come back? And so it is quite a troubling text to us if we, if we are always seeking to have assurance to know that we will be safe at the end. So uh, let's have a look at this text now. Uh, experience seems to, I should say also, uh, this text also, uh, experience seems to confirm this text, that we can fall away. The text says that we can fall away as Christians, but experience confirms this as well because we've all got friends and family that we have seen who have been very fine Christians. We thought they were great Christians, but then they seem to have left the Christian faith and we think from experience this confirms that Christians can fall away as well. And so that's troubling as well. And it's not just our friends and family that can do this. Great theologians, people that we really admire and respect, can turn their back on the Christian faith. And I, I pulled an example of this, one that was very troubling to many, many evangelicals, many reformed uh, teachers, was uh, a, a minister called Roy Clements. And he actually wrote a lot of books, was very helpful to a large number of Christians. Uh, Roy Clements became pastor of Eden Baptist Church in 1979 in Cambridge, in the UK, where he developed a highly successful ministry to students. Over a period of some 20 years, he gained a reputation within the international Christian movement as an accomplished preacher and teacher, so he was well respected. Until 1999, he served on the board of a number of leading evangelical organisations, including the Management Council of the Evangelical Alliance, a very prominent group of, of evangelicals who get together, uh, which represents more than a million British Christians across 30 denominations. His ministry with British evangelicalism, however, ended in 1999 after he left his wife and three children and began a homosexual relationship with a man from his congregation. And it threw an awful lot of Christians. Very godly, well-known preachers had said wonderful statements about this guy. For example, Ravi Zacharias, a well-known apologist, he said before this happened, he said about Roy Clements, in my estimation, Roy Clements is one of the finest biblical expositors of our time. And Don Carson said on one of the back of Roy Clements' books, Few preachers display Dr. Clements' God-given ability simultaneously to make clear what the Bible says and to apply it to our own culture. Rabbi Zacharias and Don Carson are examples there of people who looked at this guy and said, he is a fine Christian. And obviously by his conduct we see uh, what went on there. Was he a Christian and he's fallen away or was he an ever-Christian in the first place? Is he an example of this text? So how do we reconcile this text with scriptures like Romans 8 and, uh, and John 10 where it says you can't be snatched out of the Father's hand? Well, some people, of course, I should mention, don't seem to want to reconcile. They're quite happy to say that Christians can fall away and those, of course, we put in the Arminian camp after a guy called Arminius and John Wesley is a classic example of that. He will commentate on this text and say, yes, you can be a Christian and then you fall away. But for those who... Uh, don't want to go down that track, they don't want us, and they, they believe in eternal salvation, once saved, always saved. There's at least two primary solutions that they propose for the text and so uh, this is a, a bit of a difficult text, so I need you to uh, bear with me and put your thinking caps on today. Uh, the two possible solutions, I'm going to go through those, that Calvinists hold to that these are Christians and, uh, and how do we understand the text. Uh, the first one, the first solution is that it's impossible for man 
but possible for God. So when it says it's impossible for you to come back, these Christians will actually come back because God can do it. And so uh, they quote scriptures like uh, Mark 10:27, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And we do speak of God being the God of the impossible, don't we? And so it means that God can bring you back. Uh, but there are some things that are impossible for God to do. Now, from Sunday school age, you know, you, you learn God's the God of the impossible. My God is so great, he's so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do, that's true. You know, I don't know if any of you know that song. Anyway, learned that back in scripture in, in primary school. God's the God of the impossible. But there are some things that are impossible for God to do. When it speaks of God being a God of the impossible there in Mark 10:27, it's actually speaking about rich men entering into the kingdom of God. And he's saying men can't do it, but God can affect salvation in rich men. And so you've got to look at the context. And in this very chapter, some things are said that God cannot do. Verse 18 of chapter 6, verse 18, what does it say? God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to what? God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. It is out of his righteous character. We know that the promises of God are certain and true because it is impossible for God to lie. That's something that man can actually do. We can lie, we lie all the time. But it is impossible for God to lie. Same word in the Greek as the word impossible back in verse 4. It is impossible for God to lie. So, uh, it, to say that you know, when this word impossible occurs it's only talking about man in verse 4 isn't necessarily true. It could be talking of God as well. There are some things that God cannot do. And also in this uh, text we've got to look at the way the word impossible is placed in the sentence. What's impossible in, this, in these verses? It says in verse 4, it is impossible for those, and then it describes them, and then down into verse 6, the word impossible is linked, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. The thing that's impossible is for them to be brought back to repentance. And so the author of Hebrews has put the word impossible right at the front and then delayed what it's linked to and so he's put it in an emphatic position. So he's really wanting to put up front, this is an impossibility for these people to come back. He's wanting to make it absolutely clear that it's an impossibility once they do these things that they can't come back. So I don't think we can look at this text and say what's possible for, impossible for man is possible for God. Yes, that is true in a lot of things, but uh, in this case I think it's quite clear that there's... There's every reason to say, yes, it is impossible. God will not choose to bring such people back because what do they do in verse 6? To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. When people do that kind of behaviour, God writes them off and doesn't bring them back. The second solution, uh, so the first one was that, you know, possible for man, impossible for man, possible for God. second one is that it's all hypothetical. Okay, so these verses are all talking about a hypothetical situation and it all relies on that little word if in verse 6. So it says if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. They can't come back if they fall away. So they say, look, it's just a big hypothetical situation. We know from Romans 8, we know from John 10 that it can't actually happen. Okay, so you keep that in the back of your mind but it's just saying if you were to fall away, you couldn't come back. Now, 
there's a couple of reasons why uh, this argument fails, but I should mention that this is where a lot of Calvinists do uh, hang their hat. They go for this text and, and this solution. They say it's all about the if. Uh, I don't generally drop names in sermons, but I thought because it's such a difficult passage it might be good for you to know uh, some people who hold to different views. Uh, for example, with this one that it's all hypothetical, uh, Spurgeon holds to this view and uh, Marcus Lone, so previous Archbishop here in, uh, in Sydney, uh, Anglican Archbishop, he holds to that view as well. He goes, it's all about the word if. But there's a problem with that because the word if isn't actually there in the Greek. Now, it's what you call a participle and you can translate these participles as conditional, so if this happens, but generally they're translated as while or or then. And so there's actually a a series of participles in these verses and so, for example, the word enlightened is a participle, the word tasted is a participle uh, and... uh, to uh, they have become, it's there in verse 4. But anyway, if you're going to translate one of them as if, you should translate them all as if. And they haven't chosen to do this, but the King James goes down this track, the NIV goes down the track of putting an if there, but it's not necessary to put an if there. And I'm not some sort of radical saying that the NIV is wrong, I quite like the NIV. But, um, for example, the ESV and the extra special version, the NASB, the, the American one, uh, that uh, also, they translate it as then. They leave the if out. So I'm not unusual in uh, removing the if there. So the if isn't necessarily there, plus the big problem with this solution, that it's all hypothetical, is it's illogical to warn someone of something that can't actually happen. What kind of effect does a warning to someone that can't actually happen have? I mean, if I was to say to you in the next minute, you aren't going to be able to breathe, so you better do something about it. You just go, oh, well, I know I'm going to breathe. If you had a gun, I might pay a bit more attention. But, you know, we know it's going to happen, so your warning's useless. And that's what this would be as well. If you say it's all about the if and it can't actually happen, then the warning doesn't hold up. I'm not afraid that I can't come back because I know that God's got me in his hand and so I don't have to worry about it. But then it just deflates the whole warning. It's it's kind of useless. So they're the two possible solutions that a lot of people uh, propose as to how to understand this, that they are believers but then they, uh, that it's either possible for God or that it's just a big hypothetical situation. There's other ones but they aren't as popular. Uh, If you want to know those you can speak to me afterwards. So what's the solution? How do we reconcile this text? As John said before, there are no mistakes in Scripture. There's no clashes. It doesn't contradict itself. Okay? How do we reconcile this text with those ones that say we can't be snatched out of God's hands, but here it says we can fall away? How do we reconcile it? Well, what if the people here described weren't actually believers in the first place? I mean, we read the text and we think straight away, oh, this is talking about Christians but is it necessarily talking about Christians? And so I want to spend a few minutes now looking at each of the descriptions of these people that are described in verses 4 to 6 and going through and seeing are they necessarily descriptions that have to be of Christians? Yes, they are things that we talk about of being a Christian, but do they have to be? Can non-Christians experience these as well? So first one there is in verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. So the first one there is about being enlightened. Is being enlightened something that is only happens to Christians? 
And of course we, we speak about being enlightened as being something to do with Christians and the word there is to do with the word light. And so we talk about, I saw the light back in you know, 85, that's when I became a Christian. We talk about the kingdom of light, the scripture talks quite plainly about that. We see uh, Jesus say, what does he say? I am the light of the world. We speak about being people of the light. So, but can non-Christians be enlightened? Can they find out about God? Can they experience the light of the gospel and not be saved? Well, I think we, uh, we see clear examples of that happening in Scripture, of people finding out about God but then ignoring the truth. They are enlightened to the things of God but not converted. One example in the Old Testament who hears the voice of God quite clearly is Balaam, Balaam. And he's you know, the guy with the donkey that speaks back to him. He hears direct prophecies from God about what he is to do. He is to bless the Israelites repeatedly. But he is said to be a wicked man, a godless man. And they actually put him to death when they conquer the land. He isn't. He isn't a person of God. He isn't a child of God at all. But he receives direct prophecy from God. He speaks with God. He is enlightened by God. But he isn't saved. And uh, another example, of course, would be in uh, the, the fact that everyone really in the world is enlightened to the things of God in one sense. Romans 1 tells us quite clearly that. Romans 1 verse 21, it says... For although they knew God, speaking of everyone in the world, particularly wicked men, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. What does it say there at the beginning of the verse? For although they knew God, everyone in the world knows God exists and they know that they should worship him, but they suppress the truth in their hearts. They may not actively tell you that, but even every atheist out there who's adamant, I don't believe there is a God, in his heart, deep down, it may be so hardened over that he doesn't even recognise it uh, for what it is, he knows that God is there, but he chooses to reject the truth. Everyone has been enlightened that God exists and that he deserves to be worshipped, but they reject him. So it is quite plausible that uh, these people are non-Christians. But just because they've been enlightened doesn't mean that they are Christians. And I mean another example of of people who are, well not people, uh, things being enlightened to the things of God is James uh, talks about demons. James 2.19 he says, Even demons know there is one God. But does it save them? What do they do? No, they shudder at the thought. They don't acknowledge him as the wonderful God and and the saviour of them. No, they shudder at it. So it it is possible to be enlightened and not be saved. Second one is uh, there in verse uh, 4 as well. It says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Second one is about tasting the heavenly gift. Now what is the heavenly gift? Well, most people see it as either Jesus himself the Holy Spirit or the Gospel. But it's a gift that comes from heaven, so it's got to be a good thing. And Christians do taste heavenly gifts from God. And if it's Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the Gospel, yes, of course, we, t- we taste uh, the heavenly gift there. But do non-Christians taste the heavenly gift? Can we say that non-Christians taste the heavenly gift? Well, the key to this one is in the word taste. Uh, tasting doesn't necessarily mean wholesale adoption. It doesn't mean actually taking something in. You can taste something and then reject it. And this is in the Bible as well. This same word taste 
is used in Matthew 27:34 when Jesus tastes wine on the cross. But what does he do? Does he drink it? No, he refuses it. He tastes it and says, no, I don't want it. And so that's what uh, this text could be saying about uh, the people described as well, that they've tasted uh, the heavenly gift but they haven't taken it on board. They haven't accepted it as their own. It's not necessarily talking about a conversion experience. Third one is uh, in verse 4 as well, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, generally when we hear about sharing in the Holy Spirit, we jump to the conclusion, yes, he's talking about Christians because Christians are said to have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. We are told that the Holy Spirit is within us when we're converted. We're told that we have a deposit of the Holy Spirit within us. So it has to be talking about Christians, doesn't it? Well, the Holy Spirit actually has different roles. One of his roles is regeneration, is conversion, but he does give spiritual gifts to people who aren't Christians. And this happens again and again in the Bible. People of God who experience gifts from the Holy Spirit but don't actually ever experience any sort of salvation. And one of the examples in the Old Testament is, of course, Saul, King Saul. He experiences the Holy Spirit comes upon him and then he's able to prophesy, but the Holy Spirit then leaves him later on. And so he, he loses that gift and he, and he leads a life that's clearly one of sin and not acknowledging God. He disobeys God repeatedly. And so we see someone in the Old Testament who had the Holy Spirit experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit but didn't experience that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And we also see it in uh, uh, people experiencing the gifts of the Holy Spirit without regeneration. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Speaking in the tongues of men and of angels, but without love, only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. You can speak in the tongues, but you can not actually love God or the brotherhood of believers. Verse 2 it says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, what am I? I am nothing. We can experience wonderful gifts from God and still not have love for God, not have love for other believers and so we are therefore nothing. We can experience gifts from God. We can partake in the Holy Spirit and not actually be saved. And then, uh, so that's number three. The, the fourth uh, description that we have is in verse five, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Now that's obviously something that we say of Christians as well. Christians taste the goodness of the word of God. They experience the uh, word of God and they really rejoice at the good news that comes, that we have eternal salvation. But can non-Christians experience the goodness of the word of God? Can they taste the goodness of the word of God and never be saved? Well, of course, we go back to that word taste. It doesn't necessarily mean wholesale adoption here. An example in the New Testament is Mark 4 with the parable of the sower where it talks about the seed sown in the shallow ground. What happens to that seed? It springs up and rejoices, but because it has no root, it withers and dies. People can experience the goodness of the word of God and say, that is great stuff but they never actually be regenerated. They acknowledge it as good news. They maybe even say Jesus is a great philosopher, he's a great teacher, I really like reading the Bible and looking at what it says. They think the word of God is good, but they've never actually experienced regenerating power. 
Fifthly, uh, it says there in verse uh, 5 as well that they've tasted, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. These people have tasted the powers of the coming age. Now powers there is usually the word for miracles, so they've experienced miracles of the coming age, the, the age that is to come, the one that when, uh, the, with Jesus being, a, we're in a new kingdom with a great king, this is a new age that we've entered into. These people have tasted the powers of the coming age. But does that mean that they are Christians? They've tasted the, these miracles. Well, of course, the word taste there doesn't mean wholesale adoption, but they've tasted of them. And we do see in the New Testament non-Christians doing great miracles, able to perform great miracles, and they aren't actually saved. The classic example is Matthew 7. Matthew 7, and it's worth looking up. Matthew 7, verse 22 and 23. Matthew 7, verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 22 says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? These people have done great things. Great power has been given to them. But what does Jesus say in verse 23? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Just because you perform great miracles doesn't mean that you are saved. Jesus is quite plain there. He says, I plainly tell you, I never knew you. And another example of this is uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.9 where it talks about the lawless one. It says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders. Just because someone's doing lots of great miracles doesn't mean that they're eternally saved, that they have experienced the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, the, the, the sixth descriptor that we have of them is that they're repentant and that's there in verse 6. If they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. If they can't be brought back to repentance, it's implying there, of course, that they were repentant in the first place. And that's something that we do speak of with Christians, isn't it? That we do need to repent if you become a Christian, you need to be sorry for what you've done. If you aren't repentant, well then obviously you don't really understand the sinfulness of your behaviour. We need to be repentant when we become a Christian. But can non-Christians be repentant as well? Well, uh, this, uh, there's a, a couple of good examples. One, of course, is Matthew 27, verse 3 with Judas. It says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. He was seized with remorse. Uh, a similar word there is used for repentance, uh, but it's a verb there. Uh, this guy, Judas, was seized with remorse, but he is spoken of someone who is eternally condemned. He was never one of us. Judas was someone who was repentant, but was never saved. And another example is just a couple of pages over in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 16, talks about Esau. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. So Esau is godless, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as their oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. He was repentant. He was upset. He was sorry for what had happened. 
but he was still godless. People can be very sorry for what they've done but never actually say, well, I need Jesus Christ to take away that sin. We can be remorseful. We can say, oh, yes, I've sinned. I've done something wrong. We can be repentant but not actually saved. So I hope that I made clear. I don't generally jump around too much in the scriptures because it gets us a little bit all over the place and scatters our brains. Anyway, uh, but I hope from looking at those descriptions that you can see that people can be non-Christians and experience these things. They can be enlightened. They can taste the heavenly gift. They can share in the Holy Spirit. They can taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and they can even be repentant. These people could be non-Christians but everything that's said here is also said of Christians as well. So really the text is inconclusive. Christians are enlightened. Christians taste all those things. They are repentant. So really the text doesn't tell us whether they're Christians or whether they're non-Christians but we know that it could be either. So how do we know that these are actually non-Christians? Because if they are non-Christians then that solves the problem. We shouldn't be surprised that non-Christians eventually fall away, that they experience all these blessings but then sometimes they will turn their back on God. How do we know that these are definitively non-Christians? Well, uh, it's always important to pay attention to the context of a particular passage. What does the verses say around it? And for two reasons we can definitively say that these are definitely non-Christians and that's because of verses 7 to 8 and then verses 9 to 12. Verse 7 and 8 says uh, is an illustration of the people in verses 4 to 6 and we know that because there's a little word at the beginning of verse 7 that says for but it's not there in the NIV unfortunately. Uh, I think they just thought that it was so obvious that this is connected to the previous people uh, that they've left it out. So in verse 7 it reads as an illustration of these people land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed in the end it will be burned. If this is indeed an illustration of those people then we know from other parts of scripture that one of the big marks of being a Christian is producing fruit. And what are these people producing instead? Thorns and thistles. And what happens to people who produce thorns and thistles? Well, it is burned. In the end, it will be burned. These people are said to be producing thorns and thistles. They aren't fruitful. Therefore, we know that they aren't Christians. That's uh, the, the reason why we have to know that they are non-Christians but then that, that's not as strong as verse 9. Verse 9 clearly says that they are non-Christians in verses 4 to 6 and we know this because firstly it changes voice in the, in, and you can see this in the English as well, it changes who it's speaking to. In verses 4 to 6 it's been speaking in the third person. It's been saying it is impossible for those, those people over there who have once been enlightened, who, 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 who. In verse 9 it says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. He's changed. He's changed from third person saying those people. He's changing now to saying you guys. And what does he say about those guys? He changes and says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things. Better things. Not saying that those things before aren't good things. They are good things. It's good to be repentant. It's good to be enlightened. It's good to have all those powers and taste them. But we speak of better things. What are these better things? 
There, after the hyphen, it says there in verse 9, things that accompany salvation. In your case, you have better things, things that accompany salvation. He's totally changed over and he's saying, look, those people over there, we know they are burned, we know they are non-Christians, and so we, but in your case, you have salvation. And what, is, what are the better things there? Well, he goes on to talk about the better things in verses 10 and following, and of course they're the fruit that we see in Christians' lives. Verse 10 and following, it says, God is not unjust, he will not forget What doesn't he forget? Your, notice second person still, your work, so we do good works, and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Love you have shown to God. Where is love in verses 4 to 6? Isn't there? Love that you show to God and love that you show as you have helped his people and continue to help him. We're doing good works of service. We're constantly encouraged as Christians. We should be serving one another. It is one of the fruits of our lives. We should be serving one another. And he continues, we want each of you to show this same diligence. So you you show diligence, diligence, earnestness, that kind of thing. Diligence to the very end. You keep on showing this earnestness in order to make your hope sure. You've got a sure hope. Those people in in verses 4 to 6, they don't have a sure hope. You guys do. Verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy. Christians aren't lazy. Christians are always seeking to do good works. They are not like those other people. They're not lazy. But to imitate those who through faith, they've got faith, and patience inherit what has been promised. Verses 9 to 12 is all about people who are going to have that great inheritance, who are Christians, and they show that they are Christians by the fruit in their lives. So, uh, from that, I hope we can, uh, you've been able to keep track with me. We can conclude that these people in verses 4 to 6 are people who are non-Christians but uh, Jesus talks about them being the weeds that grow up with the wheat. They're part of the church, they're experiencing the great blessings of the church, they hear the gospel, they're enlightened about the things of God, but they never are actually saved. And we should never think that you know, any church that we attend, everyone there is a Christian. There are going to be people, God says he'll let the weeds grow up and at the harvest time he'll, he'll sort out who's weeds and who's wheat. Okay? we've got to remember that there will be non-Christians amongst the congregation and that they can show great signs. They can show all these signs but never be actually saved. Now, am I a bit of a radical to think that these are unbelievers? Well, no. I I said I don't usually drop names but I will at this point as well. Uh, I'll I'll give a couple of names of who is with me. Uh, From modern scholars, F.F. Bruce, if you know him, him, he agrees with me, Roger Nicole, Wayne Grudem and John MacArthur. They all agree with me. Historically, so people from previous centuries, uh, who's with me? John Calvin agrees that these are unbelievers. And then from the Puritans, we've got Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, Matthew Henry, John Gill, Jonathan Edwards uh, believes they're unbelievers as well. And finally, I threw in Augustus Toplady. Now, you may not know the name Augustus Toplady. You may have seen it at the bottom of some of your hymns, Toplady there. Uh, Toplady, Augustus Toplady, he wrote uh, Rock of Ages, you know, that song that I think most of us would know. He wrote that one. Uh, he agrees that these, he's a Puritan, he, he believes that these are unbelievers as well. And I think it's quite clear from the text, particularly verses 7 to 8 and verse 9 and following. It just changes voice completely. So we've solved the dilemma. There's no clash with 
the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. We see that these are unbelievers who then fall away and that doesn't surprise us. We can have utmost assurance that once we are saved, we are always saved. No one can snatch us out of, our, out of God's hands. Now, I just want to uh, look at what this teaches us for Christians then. Uh, what it, this text ends up being is, is one massive warning text. It's a big warning. Hebrews repeatedly, over and over again, the author is warning Christians not to shrink back. The, the readers here, don't shrink back, don't fall away. You may experience persecution, but don't fall away. And he warns them several times, and this is one of those warning texts. But before I get stuck into the warning text, I just want to speak to anyone here this morning who is always a bit troubled about whether they're a Christian or not and whether they have eternal security. And there are people like that all the time amongst Christians. You're worried about, I've made a decision for Christ, I've been following him, but am I, am I saved? It's a good thing to be concerned whether you're saved, concerned for your soul, to be like that. But God gives us texts like Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God and John 10, you can't be snatched out of the Father's hand to encourage us. If we're always troubled about, am I saved? Go to those texts, look to them and get assurance and don't let a passage like this bring fear up in your, in your heart either. If you're always concerned that you might fall away, Remember that this is about unbelievers. It's not about you as a Christian. Okay? Hang on to those texts and take assurance. Now, I want to speak about the warning here. So, and if you're one of those people who's a bit concerned all the time, try and you know, don't listen too carefully to what I'm about to say. Okay? But the warning passage here is very strong. It's one of the strongest warning passages in the Bible given to Christians. It says, look how far you can come and not be saved. Look at all the blessings you can experience and never be saved. And so I want to speak to those people who this morning who uh, you've got too much self-assurance. You're never really concerned about whether I am saved or not. You think you've got it all wrapped up. You understand Christianity. You've studied the Bible. You go to church every week so you think you're okay. People say you're a fine Christian. You're a great example. I want to speak to you and if you think that's not you, then I probably am speaking to you and I fall in that category as well. Are you too self-assured? Are you never concerned for your soul? Because this passage says quite clearly, look how far you can come and still be a non-Christian still not actually be saved. You can be enlightened about the things of God. You can read the whole Bible, memorise slabs of scripture, be a great preacher, a great theologian, have written lots of articles, teach at Bible college and not be saved. You can taste in the heavenly gift, you can share in the Holy Spirit, you can taste the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the coming age and actually be repentant. Be sorry about your sins. You know, when you see the laws there, you go, yeah, yeah, I've done that one and I'm, you know, I shouldn't really have done that. Lying is bad. You can come so far and not be saved. So I want to ask you this morning, is that you? Are you the people in verses 4 to 6? Are you someone who's been to church all your life? and never actually been saved, experienced the wonderful blessings of being a part of a Christian community and never been saved. This text is a great warning and it forces us to examine our hearts and our lives to see if we really have been saved. Are we saved? And how do we know we are saved? Well, yes, if you call on the name of the Lord, you are saved. 
but we should see fruit in our lives. Are you the people of verses 9 to 12? Are you the people exhibiting those characteristics? Do you show your love for God? Do you help others? Are you continuing to serve others? That you don't just do it once and then think you've done that. Do you continue to serve them? Do you show diligence and earnestness? Uh, Do you have a sure hope? Are you not lazy? Do you have faith? There's no faith mentioned there in verses 4 to 6. Do you truly believe in Jesus Christ as the payment of your sin? Or are you just simply repentant? You know, yeah, I've done something wrong, but I've never actually asked Jesus for forgiveness. And I've never really seen any fruit. I've never really liked serving others at church. You know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really it suit me. It's not one of those things I do. We should see love for God and love for others if we are really saved. If we are not seeing that, then we should question whether we are part of those people in verses 4 to 6 whether we are just simply enlightened, whether we've tasted all those things, but we've never actually been saved. As Christians, we've always got to be looking at our hearts and looking at our lives and seeing evidences of God's Holy Spirit working there and helping us to do the good works, the good works that will last. God is good to us. He gives us uh, a huge book here of Scripture. And he gives us some passages that are there to encourage us when we're tender, when we think, oh, I'm not sure I'm a Christian and I I really struggle with this all the time. How do I know I'm saved? He gives us those ones there that say, nothing can separate us from the love of God and there to encourage us that once saved, always saved. But the question is, were you ever saved in the first place? And there are those other scriptures there that are there to warn us when we become too complacent, too self-assured, and we think that we've got it all wrapped up when really we are just, and we're going cold, when really we're just these people of verses 4 to 6. It is a fabulous warning passage there because it speaks so much of God's common grace to unbelievers. God sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous and he sends spiritual blessings upon the unrighteous as well. But they can turn their back on him and what do they do in verse, uh, verse 6? They crucify the Son of God all over again and subject him to public disgrace. We can, what John Bunyan calls the rape of God's mercy, where we shun God's mercy and we continue to sin in spite of the mercy that he's shown us. It's so much easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, isn't it? We think of that when we're contemplating doing a sin. We think, well, God will forgive me afterwards. I don't need to get his permission. I can, I can get forgiveness afterwards. And John Bunyan calls it the rape of God's mercy. You are just disgracing something that's beautiful, that God has been so merciful. So are you just one of these unbelievers who's experienced so much mercy? And one day you will, what happens to those in verse 8? But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end it will be burned. As Christians, we should always be looking for evidences of love in our lives. And if we aren't seeing those, love for God and love for others, then really we're just producing thorns and thistles. And people may admire us and think we're fine Christians, but really we're just producing thorns and thistles and we'll be burned one day. Let us speak with our God now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful nature of your word that you give us so much of your voice 
and so much that applies to us in different situations. We thank you for those wonderful passages that talk about those who are saved as always having eternal security, that you are the greatest insurance policy that we can have, one that when that judgement day comes we will be able to step up to you and say we are one of your people because we have trusted in Jesus Christ and what he has done. We thank you for those passages that we will never fall away if we truly believe in you, that you will keep us going to the end. We also thank you for these warning passages that make us examine our hearts and see whether we have too much self-assurance and we think that we have it all wrapped up and we are so proud and arrogant in our minds and we think that we have no problems at all. And this leads us to be cold and unloving. We pray that these passages will speak boldly to us and that we will examine our hearts and see if we really have been saved, that we aren't just unbelievers experiencing great, wonderful blessings from you, but really are rejecting you. We pray that everyone here this morning has accepted you as their Lord and Saviour and can see the evidence of this in their lives. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.